The relationship between God's law and God's gospel has been the subject of tremendous confusion and debate throughout church history. The focus of the debate has centered on two things. One, the nature of God's law. And then secondly, the function or usefulness of God's law, particularly for Christians today. Anybody who reads the Old Testament will quickly realize that there are all kinds of precepts, all kinds of specific detailed laws that are written in those pages. We have laws given to Israel that pertain to what they're to eat, the kind of diet they're to maintain, to the kind of clothing that they are to wear. But then there are also laws that speak to the most heinous of crimes. So there's prohibition specifically against things like murder and theft. From the Middle Ages onward, it became common for Christians to distinguish between the various kinds of laws found in the Old Testament by speaking in terms of three different categories of law. The civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. The civil law was that which was given to Israel to govern them as a political nation. The ceremonial law was given to Israel to govern them as a worshiping community under a specific covenant. And the moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, was given to Israel because they were people made in God's image. Our own Confession of Faith, the Second London Baptist Confession that was published in 1689, recognizes this threefold division. And it rightly notes that the civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament are not binding on Christians today. Why? Because Christians today are not a political nation. We don't have a political united entity that we say is the Christian church, but rather we are scattered throughout all the nations of the earth. And Christians today are not a worshiping community under that old covenant that bound Old Testament Israel. However, we are obligated to keep the moral law. We're not commanded to keep the dietary and clothing laws, civil and ceremonial, but we are obligated to keep the Ten Commandments. Why? Because we are still people made in God's image. That has not changed. Though we're not Jews, we are image bearers of the true God. So the commandments, though they cannot make us right with God, nevertheless reveal to us what our God requires. They show us what is right and what is wrong. They reveal to us the kind of righteousness that God expects and calls his image bearers to provide. Though we cannot keep these Ten Commandments, this moral law as we ought, Jesus Christ can and did. Out of his grace and love and mercy, God sent his Son, the Lord Jesus, into the world to keep the whole law for his people and to suffer the punishment due to their sins. He did this by his life and his death and his resurrection. He earned righteousness for everyone who trusts in him and calls him Lord. And it's because we do trust in Christ that we have our sins forgiven. 
as you trust in Christ, you can be sure that for Christ's sake, God accepts you. The righteousness that He earned is sufficient for you. The sins that you've committed have been atoned for by His death. So the moral law no longer condemns believers in Christ. It has been satisfied. But that does not mean then that the moral law is no longer useful for Christians. Since it cannot save us, should we just simply dismiss it? Since it no longer condemns us, and we don't have to fear its condemnation, can we just forget the Ten Commandments? Can we just live as if God never spoke those commandments? Well, no. No, not at all. Just as there's a threefold nature of the Old Testament law, moral, civil, and ceremonial, so there's also a threefold use of the moral law that the Scripture teaches. In their debates with Roman Catholicism in the 16th century, the Protestant reformers came to see this threefold use of the law very clearly. And if you want more insight on it, I would just simply commend to you John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2, where he takes this subject up at great length. All of the great Protestant Reformed confessions of faith spell out this threefold use of God's moral law, and this is true of our own confession, the 1689 Baptist one. The first use of the moral law is to see it serve as a mirror, a mirror that reflects God's holiness to us and then reflects back to us our own unrighteousness and sinfulness. So when we measure our lives by the Ten Commandments, we are convicted, we are reminded that we do not measure up to what God requires. That's one way that God expects His law to function. We should see it as a mirror, look at it. We should encourage other people to measure their lives by it so that we all have an increasingly honest and accurate understanding of what God requires and what we in our own strength and efforts can provide. A second function of the law can be compared to a curb. A curb. A curb warns automobiles when they begin to drift off the roadway and they hit the curb and they can come back to the roadway. Well, in the same way, God's law inhibits lawlessness and restrains evil by the threats of punishment that are attended with it. Violators of God's law we'll find in the scripture that they are regularly threatened with judgment because of their violation. So the law serves as a mirror. It serves as a curb. A third function of the law is to serve as a guide and a rule for God's people to show us how we are to live, to show us how to please God. Again, the law cannot, it does not save anyone, but it does show those who are saved how to live God-honoring lives. It is at this point, with the so-called third use of the law, that we see the relationship between loving God and obeying His commandments come together. Jesus puts it together quite simply in John 14, 15, when He just said, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. This is what J.I. Packer meant when he wrote, Love is or the law is love's eyes, and love is the law's heart. Without the law, love doesn't know what to do. 
And we see this all the time, don't we? Oh, I love you, therefore I'm going to do this. And the this very often is contrary to what God says is right, good, and true. Well, that's not love. That's blindness parading in the name of love. And then also, if there's no love, well, then the law is just dead. You can hammer people with rules and regulations, but if you do not understand the motivation behind God's giving of the law out of His love for us to show us how to love, then we can quickly fall into a legalistic type of Pharisaism. Well, today in our study of Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul teaches the third use of God's law. He does it by reflecting upon the way the law worked in his own life, his life as a Christian, as a man who had experienced God's grace, was enjoying the forgiveness of sins, was in a reconciled relationship to God. As such, Paul was fully committed to living a life in complete obedience to God's commandments. He looked to God's law as the rule and measure of his life as a Christian. And as he writes about that in Romans 7, we learn how God's law should function in the life of every Christian. So let me encourage you, if you've not already done so, to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Romans 7, 14 through 25. It's found on page 943 and 44 in the Bibles that are provided for you. And I strongly encourage you to get a copy of God's word in front of you so that you can follow along not only as I read it, but as we work our way through it and we see the language that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God's spirit, employs as he talks about his own life as a believer, striving after holiness as God defines it in his commandments. Hear the word of the Lord as I read aloud. Romans 7, beginning in verse 14, down through the end of the chapter. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Of what use then is God's law to the Christian? It is useful to us because it shows us our duty. God's law exposes our sin and magnifies our Savior. 
We see this by paying close attention to the way that Paul, a Christian, describes his own thoughts and actions as he measures them by the moral law of God. And there are three lessons that I want to call to your attention from this passage that I just read for us. The first is this. Christians affirm the goodness of God's law. The goodness of the Ten Commandments. Paul says it plainly if you look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. Well, when he uses that word spiritual, he's pointing to two things. One, he's pointing to the source of the law, the Holy Spirit. The Ten Commandments are the words of God. They are inspired by God. They're given to us by the Spirit of God. So when we talk about the law, we should always do so with the recognition that it is indeed God's law. It's not Moses' law. God is the one who spoke those ten words at Mount Sinai. But this word spiritual also refers to the nature of the law. The fact that it is holy and just and good. It's from above. It's not from below. Then look at verse 16. In the middle of it, it says, I agree with the law that it is good. He's saying, man, when I, when I do these things that are wrong and I admit they're wrong, what am I doing? I'm agreeing that the law is good. Good in the highest and ethical sense of that word. In other words, God's law is the norm. It's the standard. It defines goodness, righteousness. We don't get to make up, according to our own fancies, what we think is right and good. God's defined what is right and good. And Paul says, I agree with the law that it's good. And then verse 22, of course, this wonderful outburst of Paul's when he's thinking about how he wants to be so much holier than he is. He, he wants to completely obey God's commandments, and yet he, he finds that he just can't yet do that. He says, but in my inner being, I delight in the law of God. He loves it. He's not castigating the law because of his inability perfectly to keep it. He's not wanting to get away from the standard, throw it away because he knows that he falls short of it in his personal life and actions. No, he says, I delight in that law. I don't just say it's right. It's good. It's good. Paul aspires to keep God's law completely. You see this in verse 18. And in the latter part, he says, For I have the desire to do what is right. Right defined by whom? By God. Right defined by the commandments. He aspires to live a righteous life. Look at verse 19. When confessing his failure to keep the law perfectly, he puts it like this. For I do not do the good I want. Good defined by whom? By God. In his commandments, he understands that to be the definition of goodness. Then look at verse 25. At the end of that, uh, Paul says, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. In other words, my highest aspirations. I'm not arguing that God's law is anything less than right, good, beautiful, desirable. That which I take great delight in. In his inner life, he desires to keep God's law. In fact, this aspiration of Paul's is one of two principles that operate in every Christian's life, as he explains in verse 23. Look at verse 23. He says, but I see in my members another law 
waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, it's important here to make the distinction between Paul's use of the word law in this verse compared to the way he's speaking of God's law, the moral law of God. Here, when he uses the word law, it might be better to take it as principle, as a, uh, an operating system. It's like the law of gravity. You know, gravity's a, not a code that's written that you measure up to. Gravity's a force. It's a principle. It's what causes things to go to the ground. It's what holds things to the ground. Well, that's what Paul means when he speaks about this law waging war against the law of his mind. These two principles. What are those two principles? Well, one of them he calls the law of my mind. The principle of my inner life that he's just described to us as aspiring to keep God's commandments perfectly. It's that operation that arises from the Holy Spirit's work in a Christian's life when we're born again. The Spirit creates new life in a believer so that every Christian has a new nature. Every Christian trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ and loves God and wants to honor and obey God. It is this principle of life, this principle that he calls of the mind that delights in God's law and wants to keep it completely. That's one principle inside of every Christian because we have new natures. But there's another principle at work in every Christian's life. And that's what Paul calls in verse 23, another law that would make us captive to the law of sin. Another principle that would keep me captive to the principle of sin. This is the operation of sin that continues on in the Christian's new nature. Now, this is important. It's easy to get confounded on this very point, and there's all kinds of bad teaching that has arisen from misunderstanding what a Christian is in terms of our new nature. When God saves a person, he changes that person's nature. He does it genuinely and powerfully, but not perfectly, not completely. So when you become a Christian, you get a new nature, but that new nature still has sin that remains within it. We'll talk about this more in just a moment. But it's an important point to recognize that these two principles operate in the life of every Christian. The one arising from the Spirit's indwelling presence and power in your life, having given you new life. And the other, the sin that still remains in your new nature. It's the principle of remaining sin that wages war against the principle of new life that wants to obey God perfectly. And when Paul fails to obey God perfectly, he hates it. He hates the sin that remains in him. And that very hatred is a testimony to the fact that he really does affirm God's law. This is what he means in verses 15 and 16. Look at these verses. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. I want so much more than I do. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do What I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Brothers and sisters, do you see the honesty and the humility of the Apostle Paul? He refuses to pretend that somehow he has attained by his own efforts to the completed righteousness that God requires of his image bearers. He refuses to say, 
about himself anything other than what God says about him. And so he won't measure his actions. He won't measure his thoughts by the opinions of others. He measures them by what God says is right. He measures them in the light of the law. Christians affirm God's law and acknowledge its goodness and righteousness. It reveals God's unchanging standard of what is right and good because the law is the transcript of God's own character. The Ten Commandments are not arbitrary. They are a revelation of what God is like. So, first, Christians affirm the goodness of God's law. The second lesson, we've already touched on it, but I want to elaborate it, is that Christians have sin remaining in them. The best of Christians have remaining sin. Paul again says this very plainly. Look at verse 14, the latter part of it. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, he's not happy about this, and he didn't sell himself under sin. He has been sold under sin. How? By being born into a sinful race, humanity. Despite his greatest aspirations and best efforts, Paul cannot escape his sin. It remains in him. It's mixed in with all that he does. So in verses 17, the first part of verse 18, he says, when he does the things that he hates, he recognizes that it's now no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. The, the law is what exposes the sin that remains within Christians. And notice when Paul talks about nothing dwelling, nothing good dwelling in his flesh, he's not talking about his physical body. When you see flesh here, don't think that Paul's talking about physical body. Rather, he uses this term flesh to uh, describe sin and the, the nature of sin that remains even within a born-again believer. Look at verses 19 and 20. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Brothers and sisters, one, one of the most liberating understandings that we can find in the scripture about the nature of a true Christian is to recognize that every true Christian has sin that remains within him. If you don't understand this and you're not willing to let the word of God just wash over you and show you this truth, you could go insane if you're honest. Because you say, well, man, a Christian's a new creature. Christians justified before God. Christians called never to sin again. And, and if you're honest, like Paul, you'll have to say things like, Paul, the things I don't want to do, I do. Things I know I should do, I don't do. The, the things that I hate, it's what I wind up doing. You think, what's wrong with me? Listen, what's wrong is you're not yet perfect. You're going to be but not yet. And that's no excuse to sign a peace treaty with your sin. But it is reason to give you to hope. To recognize that the very struggle that you have, the very hatred of your sin is evidence of God's grace at work in your life. What we learn from Paul 
here is that a Christian is a divided person. He's a person that's been born again, so he has a new nature, but that new nature is not yet perfect. Sin remains in the life of every Christian. Paul summarizes this in the last half of verse 25. Look at this. This is like the summary of everything he's just written. So then I myself, my inner life, serve the law of God with my mind. That's my aspiration. I don't, I'm not protesting what God says is right, good, and true. But with my flesh, sin that remains in my new life, I serve the law of sin. This is why Paul writes the way that he does here. He's given us an honest assessment of a genuine believer. Born of God's Spirit, new creation, new person, but not yet completely free from sin. Brothers and sisters, this is a a liberating truth. The sin that used to reign in your life and rule and control you no longer reigns. Its rule has been broken by Jesus Christ. When you confessed Christ as Lord, sin's power was broken. The punishment for sin was removed from you. But sin's presence continues on with you. And you must continue to battle against that remaining sin in your life. Sin's not our master, but it is carrying out guerrilla warfare every day that we go on living. So the Christian life is a war. A war that we must fight against the sin that remains within us. And that's why the Apostle Paul speaks so often of the Christian life in terms of warfare, in terms of inner conflict. For example, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Where do those desires of the flesh come from? From the sin that remains within you. He goes on, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The sin that remains within you fights against the work of God's Spirit in your life. And the work of God's Spirit in your life is that from which you draw strength to fight against the sin that remains within you. Now, there are two very serious temptations that must be avoided at just this point. One, when Paul writes the way that he does, he is not denying personal responsibility for the sin that he commits. When he says, it's not me, it's the sin within me, he's not trying to absolve himself of any personal responsibility. Don't read him to say, well, it's not my fault. It's sin. A second temptation, Paul is not justifying any of his sin. He's not saying, well, look, hey, God could have made me perfect. He didn't. It's inevitable. I'm going to sin. So don't get upset about it. We've got to resist both of those temptations that Paul resists. What Paul shows us is how a real Christian thinks about his life. Already born again, already new creation, not yet perfected. He loves God's commandments and he is committed to a life of obedience to those commandments, but he's not yet able to keep those commandments perfectly. So he fights. He signs no peace treaty with his sin. On the contrary, he makes war against it 
He refuses to ignore it. He refuses to pretend it's less than it really is. He refuses to give up and just give himself over to sinning as if that's an acceptable way for Christians to live. What we learn from the Apostle Paul in this passage is the very thing that motivated the Puritan theologian John Owen to write his masterful work, The Mortification of Sin. And in that book, which I highly commend to all of you, I understand we have one discipleship group at least going through it right now. It's a great book. In that book, Owen very pithily, memorably remarks, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Only options we have. We're going to see in the next chapter how Paul admonishes that very thing to, by the Spirit's power, put the sin that remains in our lives to death. So we learn from these verses, first, that Christians affirm the goodness of God's law. Second, that God's law shows Christians that we have sin remaining in us. The third lesson that I want to call to your attention is this. Christians confess their sins and trust Christ. That's how we live. We live in repentance and faith. All through this passage, we find Paul indicting himself. I mean, he's admitting his sin. He admits that he doesn't do what he wants to do. And indeed, he admits that he does the very things that he hates to do. Isn't this interesting? Why would a person admit that? Because Paul is secure in Christ. He has nothing to pretend about nor to hide. In verses 19 and verse 21, he calls the sinful things he keeps on doing evil, evil. He hates his sin. Now, no one can honestly use Paul's words in these verses to justify their own sin. No Christian can say, well, you know, Paul says sin remains in us. So, yeah, so what if I scream at my wife? Just what? You know, hey, I'm a sinner, right? No, there is never any justification for our sin. Never. Never. Any sin you commit, any sin I commit, we are culpable of committing. And we need to own the responsibility of it. And we certainly should not pervert this passage to suggest that sin is anything less than evil, than wickedness at any given point. If you ever find yourself seeing the things Paul says in these verses and feeling the way he feels about sin that remains in you, then brother, sister, praise God. That's God at work. That's God showing you the truth, not to condemn you, not to hold you back. It is showing you your ongoing need of his grace that he provides you in abundance through Jesus Christ. So keep confessing your sin. Keep fighting against your sin. Keep putting it to death. Don't let yourself pretend and don't let yourself give up. See the sin that remains in you for what it is. Abominable. Hateful. And declare war on it. Husbands, what this means is you should never be satisfied to treat your wife harshly. Or to speak to her sinfully. Measure your words and actions by God's commandments, not by what you think she should do for you or provide. And as you measure your words by God's commandments, confess the wickedness of such sins 
make war against your sins that you commit against your wife. Wives, do not ignore your lack of respect and submission to your husband or pretend that it's no big deal. Admit it. See it in the light of what God says. Confess it to be sin. Grieve over it. Put it to death. You single adults, measure your lives by what God says in His Word. Don't squander your time and energies on sinful or even worthless things. Aim to please God in all that you do. And where you sin, confess it. Turn from it. Kill the sin that remains in your life. Children, young people, don't treat your disobedience and dishonorable attitudes toward your parents as insignificant. They're not. They're violation of God's commandments. Hate your sin. Forsake your sin. Repent of your sin. Don't be at peace with it. God's law causes Christians to see and confess their sins. But notice what else the law does in the believer as Paul testifies of his own experience. We see it in verses 24 and 25. Christians who measure their lives by what God says is right, good, and true in His law, do not depend upon themselves, but they depend upon Christ. I, I love this, verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When Paul considers the commandments of God and refuses to turn away from them or to pretend that they're no longer of use in his life, and he looks inward, he finds no help, no hope. He finds failure and inability to completely turn from sin. When he takes his sin seriously and agrees with what God's law says about how wicked and evil and damnable it is, and he cries out, who will deliver me? He looks up and he sees Christ. And he says, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is a Savior. Christians, we have that Savior. We need Him as much today as we did that moment that we first called upon Him to rescue us from our sin. And He is as much for us today as He was at that very moment. The only hope of being delivered from sin is Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why Paul thanks God, brothers and sisters. This is why we should be filled with greater thanksgiving than anybody else in the world who doesn't know the living God. Christ has justified us. And the Christ who has forgiven us of our sins, justified us before God in His courtroom, is the same Christ who will fully sanctify us and bring us completely into glory where we will be free from sin forever. So Paul writes what he does in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That's a promise. Isn't that a great promise? You know, you look in and sometimes you think, I don't, I don't know, it doesn't seem like it's getting any better. And you might even wonder sometimes if you're going to make it. 
It doesn't depend upon your ability to get everything just right. It depends on Christ, and Christ has already gotten everything just right. And He's begun the work, brothers and sisters. He will complete the work. You will be saved completely by the same grace that saved you initially. So while Paul grieves over the sin that remains in him, he rejoices over the Savior who will deliver him completely. Oh, a right understanding of God's law. A right appreciation of how to use it in our lives. To measure our thoughts, attitudes, and deeds. Not only causes us to confess our sin and turn from sin. It also causes us to look away from ourselves to the only one who's perfectly fulfilled God's commandments. Who's taken our sin upon himself and shed his blood for every last one of them. You want to appreciate Christ more? Then don't downplay God's law. Think honestly of what the law reveals. We find sin mixed with all that we do. Jesus never sinned once. Not in the slightest capacity. Think about this. Think about the myriad ways that we tend to justify our sin. Yeah, I know I shouldn't have done that, but I was tired. Jesus got tired. Well, I I know, but it, it was wrong. But man, I've been working all day long. Jesus worked night and day. Well, I know I shouldn't have, but he did it first. Jesus was provoked time after time after time. Completely without reason. Well, I'm only human. Jesus was human. He fulfilled righteousness. You see, all of our failures, all of our inabilities to live the way that in our inner man we want to live, Jesus did it. It's amazing that he did. But he did. And he did it for us. So we with Paul can thank the Lord through Jesus Christ our God, our Savior. Jesus was tempted at all points like we are, yet without sin. The righteousness that God requires and that his law shows us that we must have, we cannot provide. Even our best efforts are not good enough, but Jesus has attained it. He earned it. By his death on the cross, he paid for all of our unrighteousnesses, and he does it for everyone who will trust him. So brothers and sisters, as we trust him, we should rejoice in him. We should be filled with thanksgiving as we fight against the sin that remains within us. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Recognize that you are going one day to be completely, perfectly righteous because of the work of Christ. You know, I I know there are people here that are not Christians. You're not trusting Jesus. And I, I just want to ask you for a moment. Have you ever stopped to consider this? Have you ever stopped to think about how God views you? How does God regard you? You you might think, you know, I'm not a bad guy. And compared to other people, you might be a really good person. But when you compare yourself to God's commandments the way Paul does, you have to admit you fall short, right? You have to. I mean, just honesty demands that you admit this. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when you stand before God? And this same law that we talked about this morning is set before you and your life is measured by it. You you have no hope 
in yourself. No excuse will serve you at that time. But there is a Savior. Jesus came into the world because of people like you and me. We cannot attain. He did attain. And He did it for everyone who will trust Him. So friend, I would plead with you this morning to trust Him. Receive Him as Lord. Bow to Him. Call Him Lord. Children, listen to me. Children, young people. Some of you have heard this all your life. All your life. And yet it seems like it doesn't really matter to you. You seem to be content to just go on living without really paying attention to the way you're living in the light of this holy law of God that you cannot meet. Why won't you trust the Lord Jesus? Come to Christ. Believe Christ. He is a great Savior. He came to save sinners like you. So trust Him today. When the 16th century reformer Martin Luther got his mind around this teaching that we've just looked at in Romans 7, he summarized his understanding of the Christian in the light of these teachings by putting it in a very succinct, memorable Latin phrase. The Christian, he says, is simul justus peccator or et, et peccator. At the same time, just or righteous and sinful. At the same time. So we're righteous because we are accepted by God in his courtroom through the work of Jesus Christ. We're justified. We're completely justified. We'll never be more justified than we were that moment when we trusted Christ. But sin remains, so we are also sinful. But that sin that remains in us no longer reigns in us, and it will be finally overcome on the day that Jesus returns. When Christ returns, John says in 1 John 3, we will see him as he is, and we will be made like him. And everybody who has this hope purifies himself declares war against sin, and keeps striving against it. Christ's work for us is complete, secure, unchangeable. Christ's work in us is progressive and continues on and will be brought to completion on the day of his return. Oh, when that day occurs, when Jesus returns, it will be a moment when we will finally be able to appreciate, to start fully appreciating all that he has done for us. It's then that we will be able to experience what Robert Murray Machane wrote about in that hymn, which says, When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your word. With the Apostle Paul, we thank you for your law, for the way that it teaches us, shows us the truth, doesn't let us off the hook. 
And we thank you most for your Savior, for the Lord Jesus who came into the world and lived up to all your law's demands, who fulfilled righteousness, and who gives that righteousness to all who trust in him. And we do trust him today, and we thank you for him. God, I pray that you would call others to turn from sin and trust the Lord Jesus today. That you would convict and draw and reveal Christ in a way that those who walked in the room today burdened by sin might walk out today free, knowing their sins are forgiven because of the Lord Jesus. Seal to our hearts the truth from your word today, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.